about the podcast where sometimes we go behind the music. This is a bonus episode that we released back in December. It is me and Carolyn Kendrick, the producer and sometimes co-host of the show who makes all things possible. And in this case, we talked about Fleetwood Mac's rumors and the story behind it. And this was a really fun one to do. And you can't hear her, but Carolyn does agree with me. I was not holding her hostage. If you have been listening to this show for a while, Stevie Nicks is kind of a recurring leitmotif for me, as is Fleetwood Mac. Stevie Nicks is the woman who taught your cold English wife how to feel. And because we are all trying to have a little bit more fun than usual this summer, because life is short and summer is shorter and you got to go swim in a lake when you can, we thought we would bring this episode out that a lot of you have not heard and which seemed to bring people a lot of joy um, at the time and inspire people to listen to more Fleetwood Mac, which is always good, especially in July. Thank you so much for being here. Have a great summer, you guys. Carolyn says hags. Welcome to You're Wrong About After Dark, where we talk about new gossip, old gossip, and movies I like. <laughs> and with me today to talk about old gossip, aka history, about Fleetwood <laughs> Mac and the recording of rumors, is Carolyn Kendrick, who produces this show that you're listening to right now. Hello. Hello. Hi, Sarah. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy that you're here, and I'm so happy that we are talking in a way that other people get to enjoy because I always love doing that with you. Oh my gosh. I always love doing it with you just so much. Anytime I get the opportunity, I will grab it. Me too. And we are talking about rumors today and the making of rumors. And we're also talking about kind of how music is produced and mm -hmm. then in a broader sense, how audio is produced, which you have to do with you wrong about. Yeah. And one of the things that I have loved about researching this is that as somebody who loves the album rumors, which even if you don't think you know what that album is, you probably do. You probably know a song from it that you've heard somewhere along the way. It's the album that Stevie Nicks's Dreams comes from. It's the album that gave us Don't Stop the Anthem of the Clinton administration <laughs> for better and worse. Oh, yeah. And of course, Songbird and the probably least played on the radio song from it, Oh Daddy, and a bunch of other ones. <laughs> yeah. Sarah, just to do a little foreshadowing at the end of the episode, yeah. I would love to do a Fuck, Mary Kill of each of these songs. Oh, my God. I love that. And I love doing that with the songs rather than the people in the band. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. once you've heard this whole story, you're like, oh. You're like, uh-oh. <laughs> Let's just stick to the songs. You're like, oh, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which song is the oh, daddy? Yeah. It's fascinating to me how much effort and time and revising and sort of collage this album took and how it mm -hmm. took a solid year of effort. And one of the sources... I used a lot in preparing for this is a book called Making Rumors by the album's producer. He started off as an engineer and was promoted to producer midway through. Ken Kelly, also known as Colby Kelly's dad. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I just remember that her big hit was bubbly. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And Ken is a very proud dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Because we'll be like deep in a story about like, you know, people doing coke in 1976. And I'll be like, it reminds me of my daughter, Colby. And you're like, oh, this is a nice little break in the scheduled programming. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's lovely. But yeah, I also wanted to kind of within this episode, having you here because we love Fleetwood Mac, but also because we make this show together Mm -hmm. for you to talk about what it means to be the person who you know, ideally, if you do your job the best that you can, nobody will think you exist. Yes. I mean, it's kind of like an editor in literature or in journalism or anything like that, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you don't want to think about how the sausage gets made. You don't want to think about the process necessarily. You just want to be immersed in the actual art. The job of a producer and an editor, which is I do both, is, yeah, exactly like you just said, just to Mm -hmm. make sure that you, Sarah Marshall or whoever, whoever the artist is in that moment, can express their ideas most concisely and profoundly. Yeah. And I feel like this gets into the sort of the human thing, which Janet Malcolm writes about in The Journalist and the Murderer, that the advent of the tape recorder prompted this revelation that when we think we're speaking in very coherent, simple sentences, we're actually speaking in sort of one sentence worth of material that gets spread out in pieces over five sentences. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of little digressions. And language that kind of is filling time or goes nowhere or adds a layer of confusion. I feel like if you're not used to hearing your recorded voice talking, it's easy to believe that you're making more sense than you are, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I have learned a lot about speaking voices over the last couple of years as I've been working on this show and on You Are Good and Yeah, it turns out that we are processing what we're thinking in real time as we're going through. And even if you think you know what you're saying, you kind of don't. So, (laughs) right. You know what you feel you're going to say, but you don't always know what you're going to say. The sort of intimate quality of conversation is that you're experiencing someone figuring out what they think potentially. Yeah, absolutely. People in movies do not speak the way that you normally speak when you're having a conversation with a friend, because when you're having a conversation with a friend, you're talking over each other all of Mm -hmm. the time. And you're in this, for lack of a better word, collage of dialogue, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's kind of like waves flowing over each other. In a movie, everything is like person A speaks, person B speaks. And it's a lot of work to make it seem natural, even though that's just not how we speak normally. Yeah. And in podcasts, it's the same thing. Like, Yeah. So both myself and Miranda Zickler do editing on this show. Mm -hmm. Usually what will happen is, you know, I record my part of the audio. I'm on a Zoom call right now. You're in, are you in Seattle or are you in Portland? I'm in a closet in Seattle. Yeah. And I'm in my guest room in California. So I'm on a Zoom call. You're on a Zoom call. I record my half of the audio. You record yours. Then we put it in two separate tracks in a digital audio workstation, which in my case is usually logic, but you know, other people use other things as well. And then basically what we do is I move every single bit of sound wave that happens so that nobody is ever talking over each other, even though we definitely talk over each other because that's just how people speak. Uh I think of it sort of like an essay so that an idea is said and then you have time to think about it. And then the next idea is said, et cetera. So that's what kind of goes into the actual editing process for podcasts. And then 
editing and producing in music is a little bit different. And then mm-hmm. producing in movies is a totally different thing because sometimes people think of producers as just like the money, you know, you know, like Rob Reiner is, you know, producing a movie. And so he's like the one that's making it happen in, in that regard. And I think like I and I assume many other people think of it as like, you're the one who gets the Oscar if it wins Best Picture mm-hmm. for some reason. That's how that works out. Yeah. <laughs> A producer in music, which I also produce music as well as podcasts, Mm -hmm. is more of like a sonic facilitator in certain regards. So, for example, like I'm a musician as well. So I will write a song by myself. Usually that takes anywhere from 30 minutes to, I don't know, 30 years. and (laughs) Somewhere in there, yeah. And then what you do is you bring your song to your band or you hire studio musicians and you come into the studio and depending on how much money you have, you either have the money in to do just like a couple takes Mm -hmm. or in the case of like Fleetwood Mac or people who are assigned to big labels and especially in the 70s when there was like actually money for music and people weren't having to like fund things independently. Basically, you would have producers that would be like, "Okay, so here's what the song sounds like. I can give suggestions about maybe what is going to happen with the lyrics, maybe. But overall, I'm being like, "Okay, I'm behind the recording board. I'm behind the soundboard in the booth. And I'm going Mm -hmm. like, "Okay, like that drum sounds maybe a little off. Like, let's try a different drum sound or Stevie, you're sounding a little tired. Like maybe you can take a break so that and the job of the producer is to oversee the whole of the sonic landscape to make sure that it's sounding hopefully like how the artist wants it to sound. But often producers in like big labels and stuff are thinking about how it can sound for it to be marketable. Hmm. So there's sometimes a little bit of pull between what the artist wants and what can sell on the radio. I love the producer-editor comparison because that does feel so true to my experience having things that I've written be edited Mm -hmm. for some kind of publication or in an academic context. Mm -hmm. And also editing myself where so much of the job, in my opinion, is being like, what are you trying to do? Like, what is your goal with this piece of writing? As opposed to like, how do we sort of beat this piece of gold with a hammer until we get it into some sort of preordained shape. But like, what is the artist trying to do? And I feel like part of that as well is like the artist may think that they need to achieve their end by doing a particular thing, but that might actually be getting them farther away from it. And then they have to have someone who they're able to listen to about that. It's interesting to hear that Ken, who we'll be learning about more. (laughs) So he was an engineer and then turned into a producer, which an engineer in the musical world is the one who's like, you know, setting up the microphones and actually sending the sound through the board and they're mixing things to make sure that the levels are right. And then sending off the tracks to make sure that they're mastered, which in the podcast world, unfortunately, since we're not in the same place, you are acting as your own engineer because you're setting up your own microphone and everything. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. That I was an engineer. (laughs) I should put that on my business card. Accidental engineer. Not great. (laughs) Then Miranda edits it and then I do extra editing passes and then I mix it and then I master it, which that's kind of Mm -hmm. an aside. But it's interesting to hear that that Mm -hmm. it's not always super common that somebody would be an engineer and then get promoted over the course of the musical project. Mm -hmm. So anyways, um, back to Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. So can you introduce me to who's in Fleetwood Mac? Like, what are their names? Where are they from? Yeah. Yeah, Who are are these people? Yeah. So the... 
Rumors five, as I've seen them referred to, is if they're all co-defendants in a trial <laughs> uh, who record this album and who are the iconic lineup of Fleetwood Mac are Mick Fleetwood on drums, John McVie on bass. Their names are what give the band its name. Christine McVie on keyboards and vocals, Stevie Nicks on vocals and mm-hmm. a bit of keyboards, sometimes a bit of guitar. And Lindsay Buckingham on guitar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Fleetwood Mac going into rumors that to me, the two most interesting things about them are that Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks are a relatively recent addition. They joined the band together because they were already a musical duo who had just recorded an album called Buckingham Nicks, which is amazing. You should listen to it. And it flopped completely for whatever reason. Even though they're both topless oh, on the album. Really? You can see everybody's front. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So these two, they were together when they made this. They were like dating. Yeah. In, in addition to being a musical duo. Yeah. They were a couple. They had been a couple for years. The first thing they ever sang together was a duet of California Dreamin'. Oh, wow. And they had been together for like, you know, their adult lives, really. Wow. So, yeah, so they have joined the band as a couple. And the story that I feel like gets told about this is like Mick Fleetwood wanted Lindsay Buckingham to join the band. And Lindsay was like, my girlfriend has to join, too. Hmm. But she was also primarily or at least as importantly, his musical partner. And I Mm -hmm. also think Lindsay Buckingham arguably hadn't found his sound yet without her. Hmm. Well, that tracks in terms of how I know musical couples to go sometimes. They're joining because before rumors, Fleetwood Mac has acquired a reputation as the band that wouldn't die. Hmm. They began a decade earlier as an English blues outfit. Oh, The McVees and McFleetwood are all English, and the band began its life as Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, and it was led by a blues guitarist and vocalist named Peter Green. Yeah. Okay. So they're part of like the 60s British invasion, I assume, and then have this like blues element. Well, what's funny, too, is that they're like not super popular in the U.S. Like they're charting in the U.K. in the 60s and early 70s, and they're like considered this like fantastic English rock group, but like Americans don't care particularly. (laughs) Yeah, which, I mean, arguably, if I were a person there, like, there's this great English blues band, I'd be like, fuck off. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I am bringing into the mix Fleetwood Mac on Fleetwood Mac. Okay. Edited by Sean Egan, which begins with the first news stories about the band, which were about the blues incarnation of it. Okay. And so the first article we have in here is from 1967, And it's called Peter Green, the guitarist who won't forsake the blues. And Mm -hmm. either because they were calling it that or because the reporter misheard, the band is called Fleetwood Wing at this point. (laughs) Here's an excerpt I wanted uh, to know what you thought of. Okay. Peter's guitar playing has made him into one of the most highly rated musicians in the country. But does Peter think that his very specialist form of music can be truly appreciated by the audiences? No, no, only by a few. I think this is demonstrated by the applause I get when I play very fast. Hmm. This is nothing. It doesn't mean a thing playing fast. It's something I used to do with John when things weren't going too well, but it isn't any good. I like to play slowly and feel every note. It comes from every part of my body and my heart and into my fingers. I have to really feel it. I make the guitar sing the blues. If you don't have a vocalist, then the guitar must sing. 
Okay, interesting. I feel like that's interesting to think about as the genesis or the, you know, the beginning seed of this band, because I think of Fleetwood Mac as being like a very feeling and singing oriented band Yeah, in a time where rock music was very fast and flashy. Mm-hmm. And so I can see that through line of the reason that they maybe stick out eventually in the long term once they get into their final form is that they are using that principle of like actually connecting to the slower and more meditative moments Hmm. of a musicality rather than it being like, you know, flashy, super fast guitar riffs and, you know, all of that. Yeah. And not necessarily seeing speed as a like superior form of playing, although Mm -hmm. Lindsay does love to shred as well. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there's definitely elements of shreddiness in the music, but it's not their main mode of communication, which I think maybe also lends to its enduring emotion. Yeah. We were talking a little bit earlier before we were recording about how one of the things that's maybe not always alluring about men's songwriting is that it's just like one emotion at a time. Mm -hmm. And so like when you're playing fast, that's just one emotion at a time. Right. I like that. Right. And also this thing where the the instrument gets to kind of express emotions all by itself, which I think Fleetwood Mac Mm -hmm. does a lot. Mm -hmm. And there's just kind of it gives you a feeling without necessarily giving words to it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think there's also something about not being too of the moment because then, you know, the moment will change and you'll get left behind. Yeah. And maybe that's how you stay more timeless. Yeah, absolutely. Mm hmm. And Peter Green is guitarist and vocalist who was kind of the backbone of the band. And he left because he was later diagnosed with schizophrenia. And at this time, he decided that he couldn't be in a band anymore. And he had to go live a godly life and do something like be a grave digger, which he did for a while. Oh, good for him. I'm glad that he listened to his needs. Yeah. And he got upset when the band kept sending him royalty money. Oh, hmm. um, at some point. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So his life is a whole other story, and it you know seems like he had a rough road. But he left the band, and then the following year in 1971, Jeremy Spencer, who also did guitar and vocals, mm-hmm. <laughs> the band was uh, staying in LA. They were going to perform at the Whiskey A Go Go. Um, which is also funny to me thinking of them overlapping with The Doors and then yeah. thinking of Stevie mm-hmm. Nicks as like overlapping with Jim Morrison in some senses, senses as a stage presence. But anyway, the current lineup of Fleetwood Mac was staying in L.A. and Jeremy Spencer went out to go to a bookstore and ran into some members of, I think they were called the Children of God at that time. Oh. It's that cult that River Phoenix grew up in. Oh, sure. And he never came back. Oh, my God. He just like left to join a cult and was like, I can't play our gig tonight. I'm busy in this cult. Very California story so far. Yeah. And so they like started off as this like classic, like English blues outfit. They lost their musical backbone. But Mick Fleetwood and John McVie, who has joined since the Peter Green Big Beat interviews that we heard, mm-hmm. are keeping the party going. In 1974, we got this list of people who had joined the band by then. Okay. Danny Kerwin, Christine McVie, who also is married to John McVie. They had been married for a while before she joined the band, and she was previously in a blues band called Chicken Shack. Amazing. I can't wait to listen to Chicken Shack later. (laughs) 
Bob Welch, Dave Walker, and Bob Weston. Okay. And then Peter Green has left. Jeremy Spencer has left. Danny Kerwin leaves. He, I think, by the time they record rumors, is the only member who's been fired. Oh. Everyone else has left by joining a cult or amicably. Okay. (laughs) The two options. Bob Welch leaves to start another band, and Dave Walker and Bob Weston leave. Okay, great. And then we get Buckingham and Nix, and then things, like, come together, and they put out Fleetwood Mac, Mm-hmm. which they are calling the White Album as well in summer of 1975. Okay. And to me, the weird thing about Fleetwood Mac by today's standards, which is the album that gives us Rhiannon mm-hmm. and Over My Head and a lot of other great songs, is that it takes a really long time to become a hit. And it actually becomes a hit album while Fleetwood Mac is recording rumors. But initially oh. it's like, oh, it's doing all right. <laughs> So this band thus far has like had trouble hitting its stride from what I understand, because like when you have that kind of turnover, you can't really like develop a sound because it takes a long time to develop a sound. I'm sure they also are like not feeling settled as a band because they don't have the same lineup ever. And so what is this? Now we're like to set we're in 1975 now. Mm -hmm. We've got the rumors five, but they're not like famous, famous by the time that they're creating rumors. Right. And then it's like, as they're recording rumors, their previous album is climbing in the charts and doing better and better. And then they're touring to support it in 1976, which is like they're recording rumors all through that year. Okay. And then by the time rumors comes out, they've like built this foundation for it to become huge. All right. Another issue that Fleetwood Mac has had is that in 1974, their former manager... Clifford Davis has decided that he owns the rights to Fleetwood Mac and has set up a fake Fleetwood Mac that then he sends on tour. So there's like a fake Fleetwood Mac in the mix. What? There's a like, so this is like a totally different band of people that is also called Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, he puts together a band and he's like, you're Fleetwood Mac. Wow, I am. I'm dumbfounded by that. I feel like managers... And like music industry personnel of this era, especially, but also just throughout the 20th century and the 21st century are just never good people. (laughs) (laughs) But this is exceptionally weird and exceptionally terrible. Yeah. And so we get one of our early press accounts of the wonder that is Stevie Nicks. Mm-hmm. Stevie sits in an outdoor lounge chair, spooning her way through a cup of low-cal apricot-flavored yogurt as she talks. Her voice, <laughs> even at conversational level, is throaty and resonant. It's not like I just go on stage and sing every night, she begins. I scream and crash tambourine mm-hmm. on my leg and dance around a lot. It's almost an athletic trip for me because I've never been very strong. In fact, I'm like a snake all day, just grooving along slowly. Then for two hours on stage, I have all that energy. Afterwards, I'm a basket case. I've got to be practically carried away immediately. Hmm. Then we got some background on her. She says, I feel a lot older than when I joined this band. I'm 28 now. No breaks. Hmm. And Stevie is making a living by cleaning houses and waitressing. Then they join Fleetwood Mac. Okay. Because Mick Fleetwood is recording one day in a studio and the engineer is like hey do you want to hear these other musicians who are recording here as well Uh. and he goes and watches lindsey buckingham play guitar and lindsey buckingham is like 
I mean, my use of Lindsey Buckingham's guitar playing in my life is it's like a Stevie Nicks and the way she sings and kind of the lyrics that she has are a reminder that we can feel so many things at once Mm -hmm. and we are capacious enough to sort of meet our feelings as they come to us and we can even, you know, articulate these seemingly contradictory emotions that are coexisting inside of us. Mm -hmm. I feel like Lindsay Buckingham's playing reminds me of like how overwhelming it is to feel even a single thing. (laughs) Totally. That's a great, it's like, (laughs) it feels like the cup's running over. Like there's a lot going on there. So here are just a couple of descriptions of Stevie Nicks, which I had to share Mm -hmm. with another human being. If the Buckingham Nicks addition to Fleetwood Mac was a natural, so was Stevie Nicks' emergence as the new Flash Fox and Rock. One senses she hasn't deliberately created that identity, at least as a primary concern. And I feel like the thing that you know about rumors, if A, you know that it's an album or a good album, then the second thing you know is that everybody was breaking up while it was going on. And what I find interesting as a point of clarification is that, you know, if we're willing to believe Kobe... Calais dad and I am it's that um <laughs> that Christine broke up with John and that Stevie Nicks broke up with Lindsay Buckingham and that these were in both cases breakups where the woman in the relationship was like I still love you but this is just not going to work out okay I have to put the brakes on this and what okay. Christine McVie said about this at the time as well was that she really she did an interview with Cameron Crowe, who, of course, mm. was working for Rolling Stone at the time and who we must picture as Patrick Fugit and all this, <laughs> telling him, like, yeah, I love John and I the love didn't go away, but he's a bad drunk and I and his personality when he's drunk is different and it's bad. And I was mm-hmm. getting mostly that mm-hmm. we couldn't be together anymore. So they are breaking up. So Christine and John are breaking up because of his drinking problem. Yeah. And. What does Stevie cite for the breakup between her and Lindsay? So Stevie breaks up with Lindsay during the initial recording session. Oh, wow. For Rumors, which is in the music plant in Sausalito. Ooh, okay. In early 1976. Sausalito, our finest cookie. Yeah. (laughs) So to quote Patrick Fugit, Last year, during the ill-fated stretch in Sausalito, she separated from Buckingham after over six years. The best explanation is try working with your secretary in a raucous office and then come home with her at night. See how long you could stand her. I could be no comfort to Lindsay when he needed comfort. Hmm. That's what Stevie Nick says. This, by the way, is for a Rolling Stone cover story where Cameron Crowe has to interview each individual member of the band individually as if he's their couple's counselor. Wow. And it also features, I should just have you look at this cover. Look up Fleetwood Mac Rolling Stone cover, <laughs> Cameron Crowe. Okay. Oh my God. Wow. Is it an Annie Leibovitz? Is that who took the photo? Yeah, that is her. That's right. So she would have been like 28 when this came out. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Yeah, and so... It's the five of them in bed. It's like the two couples together going different directions. And they're all topless. And potentially some of them are fully naked. And they're like holding each other's hands and feet. Like I think the context is that they're all in bed together. 
obviously, but, you know, metaphorically as well. Yeah. But I think that they're actually even out of couple configuration. Oh, so Stevie is with Mick Fleetwood in the center, which you can tell if you're looking at the picture because he's giant. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe this is a tiny photo I'm looking at, but I believe Lindsay and Christine McVie are then lying with their head toward us. And then John McVie is reading all by himself. Oh, (laughs) lonesome. Yeah, because the photo I'm looking at is not a super great resolution, so I can't really see their faces. And all of the men sort of look like the same man. Yeah, it's the 70s. They all have dark hair and beards and like, a you know, big curly hair. Yeah, exactly. They're all exactly my type. And, <laughs> and two blonde women wearing sheets. So, yeah. So even at this point, like nobody is sleeping with each other literally at this point. They've like just broken up, right? So this Rolling Stone cover story comes out March 24th, 1977. Okay. So, yeah, after they've been broken up for like over a year at this point, Stevie and Lindsay, at least. Every single band I have been in, there's just like a gravity that happens when you're in a band. That Like there's an intimacy that happens. You're with these people all of the time. Mm -hmm. Like you just get to know people in a way that transforms just your daily life or transcends your daily life, I I should say. Mm -hmm. And like you communicate in a totally different language that nobody else knows. And when you're in a band together with somebody, it's like, you know them as a person, but like there's just this other angle that you also are intimate with them. And so it's just so common for people to fall in love with bandmates. Like there just Mm -hmm. aren't I just don't know of bands unless it's like sibling bands uh, or like family bands where people just like don't fall in love with each other. It just like happens all the time. And every band I've ever been in, I've like fallen in love with people and fallen out of love. Yeah. It's interesting that we take this particular story as maybe this is maybe one of the more dramatic examples of this happening. But like it's just so common to fall in love with people that you're making art with. And it's also, I think, equally common to fall in love with the music that you're making with the person, but not actually know the person. And then when you actually get to know who you're together with as a human being and not just the music that they're making, you realize, oh, this person is imperfect. This person is not who I had thought that they were in my mind. And now I have to contend with the fact that I am in a business enterprise with somebody that I am unable to have a functional relationship with and then you're like oh no and then you have to play shows together for (laughs) a really long time and then you have to drive great distances together (laughs) for 45 dollars you have to stop at come and go and go get hot dogs in between Mm. gigs (laughs) right and also i feel like the sort of the muse narrative for women is a classic and Mm -hmm. what's so much more interesting is making art together Or even if you don't do it together, kind of having art making lives together that inform and strengthen the art that you make. And Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham met in a band called Fritz and they played together for (laughs) a really long time before they got together, Mm -hmm. apparently. And then they did. And they worked as a duo and then they joined this band and broke up and were bandmates for longer than they were partners and the same with Christine and John McPhee they like met kind of in the blues scene at the time and they got married relatively quickly and then she retired from her own 
music to like be his wife. And then he joined Fleetwood Mac because apparently that was not enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Stevie Nicks has like started talking on the phone to Don Henley of the Eagles. Mm-hmm. He says, it was weird and fun. And then they arrive and they're at the same venue as the Eagles. He mm-hmm. says, no, I would never go in there and say, hi, I'm Stevie. Never. I would die first. So I go into our dressing room and here's this huge bouquet of roses with a card in it. So I open up the card and it reads, the best of my love, dot, dot, dot. Tonight, question mark, Don. Whoa. <laughs> and I said, that's about the uncoolest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. <laughs> I mean, how can you possibly preconceive something like that? And I'm dying, right? My face is red and I'm fuming. And then finally, Christine grabs me and takes me aside and says, Don didn't send that. Mick and John did. Oh, my God. <laughs> they were in hysterics. So, And yet, despite this sabotage, the Henley-Nicks relationship does continue, as we know from the song Leather and Lace. Oh, OK. <laughs> when When is this that this happened? This is 1976. So this okay. is as they're working on rumors and also touring and like becoming progressively more famous. It's after their previous album has become a hit. Okay. So they've broken up, but they're still recording rumors. They're still performing together. Yeah. What is like the tenor of the band? Because they seem fine on this cover. Like there's the connotation that they're just like swapping each other out, I suppose. But Hmm. what is the tenor in the band at this point? Well, you had asked a bit ago, what did Stevie say about this breakup? And here's here's more of what she said to Cameron Crowe, which I think also speaks to how she's willing to tell us all about it. Mm-hmm. She says, I could be no comfort to Lindsay when he needed comfort. Right. And the article says she cites an example from Sausalito. Lindsay was feeling depressed because he couldn't quite get some guitar parts down right. She says, so we go back to where we were staying and he would really need comfort from me for me to say, it's all right. Who cares about them? You know, be an old lady. Mm. One problem. I was also pissed off because he hadn't gotten the guitar part on. So I'm trying to defend their point of view and at the same time trying to make him feel better. It doesn't work. I couldn't be all those things. Right. Stevie has kept mostly to herself since the breakup with Lindsay outside of a short romance with drummer slash singer Don Henley of the Eagles. She spent her days either in the studio or at home writing and taping her songs. She icily denies talk of an affair with Paul Kantner. (laughs) It's strange for me, she says in confidential tones. I've never been a dater. I don't really like parties. I'm very alone now. I'm not one of those women who are just willing to go out and sit at the rainbow. Mm. In my position, I can meet a lot of people just because of the band I'm in. Well, I don't want to meet anybody because of the band I'm in. Stevie doesn't mind airing her personal life like this at all. I don't care that everybody knows me and Chris and John and Lindsay and Mick all broke up, (laughs) she declares, (laughs) because we did. So that's a fact. I just don't want people to pick up a magazine and go, oh, another interview from Fleetwood Mac. If it's interesting, I'm not opposed to giving out information. Hmm. On this album, all the songs that I wrote, except maybe Gold Dust Woman, and even that comes into it, are definitely about the people in the band. Chris's relationships, John's relationships, Mick's relationships, Lindsay's and mine. Hmm. They're all there and they're very honest and people will know exactly what I'm talking about. People will really enjoy listening to what happened since the last album. It's interesting that she, yeah, she is so just totally open about talking about these, you know, intense relationships, like it's a very different instinct than I have, I would say. But so obviously Dreams was written about Lindsay. Yeah. So Christine is writing songs about John, I assume. About John McVie. Yeah. And also about her new relationship, which 
is captured in You Make Love and Fun, which I submit Ooh. and have always submitted, is the most brutal song on Rumors because the subtext is Christine McPhee having her husband play bass on a song about how much she loves to have sex with her new boyfriend, which Oof. is the equivalent of saying to your ex-husband, oh my God, were we married? I totally forgot we were even married. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That is brutal. That is, but also kind of a power move. I definitely respect it because... You know, maybe he just like wasn't, you know, well, obviously, as he was like, he was a drunk and he was like not meeting her needs. Yeah. So, you know what? He probably put her through a lot worse. So, yeah, there's so much legend that this album has accrued. And I feel like this is an album about life during breakups because the McVees are divorcing the, the Buckingham Knicks's are emotionally disentangling. And also while they're recording, Mick Fleetwood's wife, who has sensibly stayed out of the band, is like, ah, mm-hmm. I'm going to leave you as well. You can also get a divorce. Oh. And one of her reasons, predictably, is that like he hasn't really been around and he's putting his energy into the band and he's the dad of the band. But that's inconvenient right. because he also has human children. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately in terms of when you're in... A relationship that like needs multiple things out of you, Mm -hmm. which like obviously we go through this in the podcast because like we are, I mean, (laughs) we're not breaking up with each other in this regard, but like, you know, we are friends and we're coworkers Mm -hmm. and we're emotional supports. And then like there's all of these different levels. And I think that as capitalism sort of like melts down the wall, (laughs) we no longer have like, I mean, maybe we never did like have categories for what the people in our lives are you know Hmm. like things just get more and more blurred when you don't have like the same kind of traditional workplace environments and especially when you work in arts or content or any of that kind of stuff like you're just inevitably working with people that you have multiple types of relationships with and so yeah it's just inevitable that like we're never going to be able to be all of the things for the people in our lives immediately around us And sometimes that's just hard. (laughs) Yeah, especially when due to supply chain issues, we all have to be four or five people now. Right. Yeah. I mean, this also occurs to me just thinking of the experience of, you know, working closely with people to mutually create something that you care about in the audio format. I'm not comparing... Mm-hmm. myself to Fleetwood Mac, but I am comparing yourself to Fleetwood Mac. So <laughs> that there's also an element of like needing some form of like comfortable, consistent intimacy for everyone to be able to get their jobs done. And like, yeah, for me to work with you, like I have to understand that I'm being witnessed by you and all of my foibles, like both mm-hmm. in the recording of this episode where we're talking to each other or the recording of any episode where you're editing Mm-hmm. and putting the episode together and also in like the working around that and the releasing and the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. There was a period in my life when I was really like an intimacy daredevil and Stevie Nicks was definitely my soundtrack for that because I think she's also an intimacy daredevil. Yeah, it sounds like it. She's like, I'm going to jump my motorcycle over all 30 of my ex-boyfriends. <laughs> oh my God. And I'm going to tell you about it. <laughs> yeah, and I'll be singing the whole time. Mm-hmm. And then I like broke a bunch of my intimacy bones. And I feel like to a great extent, working with you and doing this show with you and being part of an artistic team has been like one of the things that's been forcing me to relearn that and like get out on the mm. flying motorcycle again. Oh, that's so sweet. Wow. <laughs> you can jump over me any day <laughs> if you're up for it. 
I mean, and I think that's one of the reasons that people love you so much is that you're able to like get to the heart of something very quickly, which requires vulnerability mm. and requires intimacy with whoever you're talking to. And that's also maybe ties into why it's di- more difficult to do something scripted because when you're doing something scripted, like you're talking to yourself mm-hmm. and talking to yourself is a different kind of intimacy than talking with somebody else. Right. Yeah. That's kind of the same thing that, you know, they're going through like in the band, <laughs> they're talking to themselves and they're talking to the other people in the band. And then they're also talking to their audience. Yeah. And I think you have to really, you have to trust the people that you're looking at and kind of working with directly in at least some capacity. Like maybe you can't trust them if they're Lindsay Buckingham to not like cheat on you or something, but you have to trust Mm. them musically or artistically. Yeah. And in some sense, trust them personally to be able to create something bigger than your parts. And I mean, and also that, you know, this, this album is interesting because there's like great sort of moments of collaboration where you can see the ego not being at the front of people's thinking and then all this conflict where you can see the ego come out and it's you know Mm -hmm. it's never all one thing two questions yeah did lindsey buckingham cheat and second question are there any lyrics from any of these songs specifically that stand out as good examples of what you're just talking about well i don't have sources for Lindsay Buckingham cheating that I like pulled for this episode, mm-hmm. but the lyrics of Silver Springs are about him cheating, among other things. And it's also an interesting kind of balance to go your own way. Mm-hmm. What I love about these songs is that it's kind of like point counterpoint. So go your own way is like, if I could, baby, I give you my world. How could I if you won't take it from me? So it's like, I'm giving you my world. I'm giving you everything and you're not taking it from me. Hmm. And Silver Springs with the counterpoint (laughs) is, I know I could have loved you, but you could not let me. And so it's like both parties essentially saying like, I had all the love in the world to give, but you couldn't receive it. Hmm. And sort of jumping into the production of this album, because this is a really interesting pressure point within it that is present all the way through. Silver Springs originally is a very long song. When Stevie Nicks first recorded it, it's like eight minutes. And also going into the production of Rumors, she's considered like the weak link in the band, not just by people around the band or listeners, but by the band. (laughs) Because she doesn't really have a lot of technical knowledge compared to the rest of them. She doesn't really play any instrument that well. She'll play the tambourine while they're recording, but they don't mic her. It's just like for her to like have something to do. Oh, wow. Huh. I know of people who cannot stand Stevie Nicks's voice. I'm sure that like there are people who can't stand any voice that you can think of, but I know that she's divisive. Hmm. I love her voice, but like I'm conscious that she's doing something a little bit weird, which I wonder if you can speak to. Well, it's definitely like a very unique voice in the sense that it has like a lot more texture than your average female voice of the 60s and 70s, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's afraid to touch that texture and kind of lean into it, hmm. especially as she gets older. I can kind of hear it getting a little bit, as you know, you kind of have that like lower, mm-hmm. you know, chest reverberation going on. And once again, like we come back to the idea that she's not afraid to express emotions within the within the melodies right. and things like that. And I think the emotions that she's conveying match up with the timbre of her voice Mm -hmm. in a way that like if you think about, I don't know, just like uh, as a singer myself, I think a lot of times we're pressured 
female vocalists are often pressured to be like, well, just sound sweet, you know, just like sing a sweet song mm-hmm. or, you know, mm-hmm. make your voice sound pretty. And her voice doesn't always sound like pretty. And I don't think it should. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's like a big part of, of what she does. And it's such an interesting balance to Christine McVie, who like does usually sound pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a more consistent product and she's more of a trained musician and mm-hmm. stevie nicks is like i don't know like kind of, she reminds me a lot of mick jagger i don't feel like you hear that comparison that much but she's just like she understands that part of her job is to like put on an outfit and jump around the entire time <laughs> i mean she's often referred to as like got like witchy energy which i think mick jagger there's like an energy there right yeah and like you all of the other members like in, when i'm thinking about videos that i've seen of them playing like they all have energy they're all energetic but there isn't like a gravity around their orbit right and like stevie nicks has this for lack of a better term aura like things just like get pulled into her orbit mm-hmm. yeah I'm, I love her voice. Me too. It's the Stevie Nicks part is in podcasts. That's yeah. just the way it is. So the initial block of recording time for Rumors is nine weeks at the music plant in Sausalito okay. at the start of 1976. And so the band is newly working with Ken Calais, their engineer. And one of the main issues that becomes apparent is that they like to come in at different hours from each other and they have different drugs of choice and it's like fairly difficult to calibrate the timing so that they can Mm. all be kind of able to work for the same chunk of time because sometimes Uh John McVie will come in early and start drinking early Mm. and he apparently will sometimes start drinking at 6 a.m. Wow. And he likes to come in and have a screwdriver with just like a float of vodka on top. So just like as a garnish. Okay. And so he can become incapable of working by 10 o'clock. Jesus. Which is earlier than some of the other band members might even be coming in. Because one of the things Ken Kelly talks about that he believes in is the 12-hour rule. Where if a musician has been recording in the studio for a while, they need 12 hours of turnaround time to go home and relax and go to sleep and wake back up and come in. Wow. Mick Fleetwood is a Heineken guy and Stevie Nicks to get her voice warmed up before she sings likes to drink like a toddy with a lot of Courvoisier in it. Whoa, what is that? I don't know what that is. I think it's like somewhat fancy brandy. Oh, that sounds nice. I would. Okay. I know. I really want to try that. But she's not getting like sloshed in the way that some of the other members are. But is there a lot of cocaine going on during this recording? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> okay. That was that was my understanding was that that's kind of been the drug of choice for a lot of them. Yeah. And it starts off with like cocaine takes a few days to make its, its first appearance mm-hmm. when they're in the studio, but then they begin using it more and more. There's songs where they're like, we got to all do a magic bump to like get in the right headspace to really like yeah. wham into motion. <laughs> that's a technical yeah. term. And so the first time... They use cocaine when they're recording is when they're working on Gold Dust Woman. And then they try to do something that Mick Fleetwood calls transcension. We ran Gold Dust Woman down a couple more times, and we liked it enough to start recording. That night, we got eight takes in the can, but still something just wasn't right. John went home a little before 11 p.m. After that, a transcension broke out, and the rest of us stayed for three more hours, continuing to record the song. Hmm. 
Mick coined this term transcension to describe the moment when most of the band members were at just the right buzz point Mm -hmm. where they were ready to play or record anything, even if they were missing a couple of bandmates. Often I felt that these transcensions worked against our bigger goal. I would try my best to reason with the band to keep on schedule. But, you know, (laughs) this is making me think of like so, so often what you're feeling is like this moment of universal impact and like things being just like right in the right zone it's true that you feel that way but then when you listen back to it you're like wow that was um messy i'd say (laughs) and so also this is the day when colby calais dad first witnesses (laughs) how rage filled lindsey buckingham can get out of nowhere because he's in the booth working with another engineer Lindsay, for some reason, thinks that he's preventing the other engineer who he's used to working with from doing his job. So Ken writes, Suddenly the band screeched to a noisy halt as Lindsay jumped up, turned, and screamed at me at the top of his lungs, Damn it, Ken! Let Rickard fucking get in there and do something! Mm. He was screaming at me so hard that his face had turned bright red and I could see the veins popping out of his neck. Flabbergasted, I hit the talk back and blurted out, I'm not stopping him. I stepped away from the board so Lindsay could see that I was making room. Richard sat down and just looked at Lindsay as if to say, everything's fine in here, idiot. I didn't know what to make of it. Everything was going great and then out of nowhere, blind rage over nothing. Is it me or is that guy crazy? I asked Richard. (laughs) You're fine, Richard smiled. Never mind, Lindsay. And what is Lindsay's drug of choice? Lindsay and Stevie both are smoking a fair amount of pot. Okay. He doesn't seem to be doing like a lot more cocaine than anyone else. Okay. So he's like the average cocaine user. Okay. I don't know which substances are contributing to to this behavior, although cocaine would make sense. Although this is actually before the cocaine comes out Mm -hmm. for the band as a whole. So we don't know about his choices. But yeah, this is like, this is a trend in this account that, Things will be going fine. And then again, in this book, like over some aspect of the music, Lindsay will like go from a one to a 10 anger wise. Hmm. Ken Kelly writes, I was shocked. Everybody went back to what they've been doing before Lindsay's freak out without so much as batting an eye. Little did I know that this was the real Lindsay coming out in front of me for the first time. The others were simply used to it. In truth, it wasn't just that they were used to it, but they allowed it. They understood it. Hmm. That day's outbursts, like the verbal and physical outbursts that would follow, was just the most extreme manifestation of the obsessive character that every member of the band possessed. Which, I sort of, I can see that being true to an extent. (laughs) Well, my first thought is just that it's kind of amazing what we let people get away with in the name of making art. Like, it's like obviously not acceptable behavior. And obviously we didn't have the same sort of rhetoric around what is acceptable acceptable in terms of how to express emotions at the time. Yeah. But yeah, it's just too bad that that kind of environment was tolerated, I suppose, and that it was just seen as normal. Because I also think about the fact that like I work as an engineer sometimes and it's like such a male dominated industry. I think partially because like if I were in that room, I would be like, I'm definitely not safe. Like this could go bad. And so Like, I'm just not going to be here, you know? And so I think that that makes me sad to think about all the people who could have been not in just that room, but in any room where that kind of behavior is tolerated and then subsequently, like, aren't because of that culture. 
Right. And like the extent to which that's the meaning of like, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, why do I have to work in a kitchen that's on fire? Right. Good (laughs) point. It's like, well, if you can't stand the heat, perhaps you should talk to OSHA about ventilation or something. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good saying. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) So as they're recording this album, Their previous album is climbing the charts, and especially during this initial Sausalito phase, it like suddenly is popular in a way that it really wasn't before, to the point that previously they had been able to just kind of quietly go up to this recording facility and not be particularly noticed and go out for dinner and like not really be recognized. Mm -hmm. And then the fans start showing up and are trying to hang out in the building and also... (laughs) According to Ken Kelly, he's sharing a house with some of the band members. And because they work such long hours, there's groupies who show up who are, have been told that they can sleep in the engineers' beds because they won't be back home until like morning. Oh my God. I wouldn't like it. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't want a stranger in my bed by any means, but I could also see this like in the culture of the time being like, what do you mean you don't want a beautiful groupie sleeping in your bed? Yeah. Come on, Ken. Don't you get tired (laughs) driving that train? (laughs) Do you know where Songbird was recorded? I don't. Why don't you tell me about it? So Ken Calais, according to himself, heard Songbird, the song that Christine McVie was working on. And it was like, you know, this song would sound good with some reverb. What if we recorded it like in a giant auditorium and kind of had that kind of sound for it? And so they recorded it at the Zellerbach Auditorium in Berkeley. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) Tell me about that auditorium. You've been in there? Well, I haven't been in there, but it's interesting that they were, well, it's interesting that it's in Berkeley, first of all, because I think of Fleetwood Mac is, I know that they're recording in Sausalito, so Sausalito is closer to Berkeley than it would be to LA, but... When you said like reverb, I was thinking like, well, maybe they ended up going to Capitol Records to go do this because Capitol has a very famous reverb chamber Hmm. and also other L.A. studios. So reverb is essentially like it's taking a recorded sound and then it's like reverberating it. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'll like put on reverb right now so that you can hear the difference between reverb on my voice and reverb not Mm. on my voice so that maybe you can do that. But then a lot of times what they do is that they just like will put your voice going through like a different speaker in a different room and then it'll echo in that room and then they'll take that recorded sound and put that on. Right. But that's just replicating what happens when you're in a bigger space like in an auditorium so it's interesting that they just recorded in an auditorium which is sometimes a little bit harder to control sound wise Mm -hmm. than if you were in like a chamber situation this reminds me of like something that tom Waits said about that album he did in the mid 80s that everybody likes rain dogs i think yeah (laughs) where you know that one the one (laughs) the one everyone likes it isn't closing time yeah um And I think about this album, or definitely about this period, he was saying, you know, this is when everyone was in love with synthesizers and we had all these ways of circumventing actually having to make the sound Mm -hmm. in the world. You could just like create it. You could synthesize it. That's what that word means Mm -hmm. when you think about it. And 
how he was very much against that and in this vein of like, no, I'm going to like, if I want this weird percussion sound, I'm going to like hit this door with a stick. Right. Yeah. There's something about the literalism of all this that is really nice to read about. It's like yeah. reading about the very early days of film. Totally. I mean, it's like a very analog experience, which obviously in 76, we're still in analog in a way that we are, we're just totally digital now. It's like sort of a novelty to record analog, mm. but yeah, it's like, okay, you want it to sound like you're in a big room? Record in a big room. <laughs> <laughs> Simple solution. Which you would think that that would be obvious, but at least I think to people who record now, it's not. Because, like, you don't have money to record in big rooms now. <laughs> right. I mean, that's the other thing, too, that, like, the label was like, sure, you can take a year to make this album. Yeah. What do we care? <laughs> or, like, maybe we care slightly, but we're persuadable. I know. It's also interesting to hear about this, even the fact that, what what was it, like, did you say nine days initially? Nine weeks. Nine, nine weeks. weeks oh, my Fuck. <laughs> Nine initial weeks in Sausalito. So just for context for people, like your average independent artist now, like if I were to go make an album right now, probably the minimum, like a nine song, 10 song album with full band and the whole deal recording at a studio, it would probably minimum cost me between $10,000 and $15,000, right? And so the way that the recording industry is set up now is like either you have to figure out how to do that with no money and basically figure out how to do it at home mm -hmm. by yourself or you figure out how to save ten to fifteen thousand dollars and then you pay for it yourself or you get a kickstarter to get that money mm -hmm. or you get signed to a label that basically like labels function totally differently now than they did pre-streaming pre-internet but now it's basically more of like a loan situation where it's like they front you the money and then you sell records to give them the money back. So it's basically just giving money up, but you're not like making money in the same way that people made money then. It's so weird. If I were to make a record right now, which I'm hoping to do this year, actually, I would be like, okay, how can I get this done literally as fast as possible? Like I only will be able to book studio time for probably six days. Mm -hmm. Studio time is going to start recording at 10 a.m. We'll stop at six. We'll do comps at the end, which is where you figure out which takes you're going to take from the day. Mm -hmm. You probably will record two songs a day, maybe three, if you're like really fast. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of having nine weeks to experiment and be like, oh, mm -hmm. I took 10 takes of this song today, but like the energy wasn't there. So maybe we'll do a little mm -hmm. cocaine. I tried to do enough cocaine, but then I did too much cocaine. So let's start again uh, tomorrow at 2 p.m. <laughs> Like, that is the most luxurious, like, not the cocaine part, but it's the most luxurious thing I could ever think about having. Mm -hmm. And it's true that they're popular at this point, and they probably didn't have these luxuries when they were recording their first albums. But I'm sure that it was a much more loose environment than it is now. Yeah. And also, you know, labels at that time were just like... I mean, it's kind of like how you hear about how, you know, <laughs> the kind of projects that Joan Didion was sent on. You're like, I'm sorry, they paid for what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, <laughs> <laughs> the relationships do not shock me in this because it is not shocking to me that people fell in love, started a band and then fell out of love while they were making the band because being in a band is much less sexy than starting a band. Mm -hmm. But like the actual <laughs> components of making this record and the kind of machine that was behind it is definitely fascinating to me. 
Yeah, I'm just thinking about how nine weeks, if you look at it one way, it could seem like really grueling and exhausting and like, oh my God, it's so long kind of living as this musical astronaut. But on the other hand, it's a luxury to be able to have that kind of time with your work. Even. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also somebody was making them lunch every day. Yeah. They had catered lunch. <laughs> and even like they had a house that like paid for their and en- where their engineer was staying. Like that's also just crazy that. Yeah. Everything of this is just we're in a totally different financial world than we're in now. So speaking of Songbird again, I love how there were like there were various little like problem solving aspects to this that does remind me a little bit of when we record shows where Mm. they have her set up in the auditorium awesome but one of the problems is that she needs to stay on tempo and they're like why don't we play click track for you Mm -hmm. which i know what a click track is just because i've watched a bunch of youtube videos about the les mis movie and how (laughs) they tried and failed to use a click track to keep people singing the same song but what's a click track carolyn oh my gosh that's hilarious so (laughs) basically a click track is a metronome that gets sent into headphones Mm. So you can hear the tempo while you're recording. And also, when you're recording with headphones, that means that you can't hear anything else other than what's in the headphones, right? Mm -hmm. But also people are recording generally isolated from each other so that there isn't what we call bleed. Mm -hmm. So that like when you're mixing the guitar part, the piano isn't like over it because you need to have different balances of everything, right? Mm -hmm. There used to be a lot more bleed in more analog recordings and things like that. And especially if they're recording in an auditorium. But basically, the click track is going to be sent in so that you can hear what tempo you're on. And it'll be like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so they suggest doing that. And Christine says, Ken, I can't play my lovely song with this bloody fucking clicking blasting my ears. (laughs) That's a great impression. That's my Christine McVie impression. (laughs) So the engineers are like, okay, well, what if we have Mick just like softly play the drums with brushes and you can listen to that? And then they're like, what if we had Lindsay like very softly playing the guitar and you could hear that on your headphones? Mm -hmm. And they're like, great, nailed it. So they have Lindsay on the other side of the auditorium Mm -hmm. playing the tempo on his guitar, which even that, like they get some bleed from that, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And then the other issue is that Christine has to play it without singing, Uh, which she isn't used to doing because they need the piano track all by itself. Right. And I'm sure a lot of pianists do this, but I feel like the one I always think of is Glenn Gould, who's the famous, very important Canadian (laughs) and (laughs) pianist who is best known for playing Bach's Goldberg variations Mm -hmm. and hummed the entire time. And it's it seems to be still divisive to this day because... Some people cannot stand to listen to Glenn Gould because he is humming the whole time, forever, for the rest of your life. (laughs) I mean, it's so standard to use a click track now. And there is something that happens with like older generations where they're like, oh, it just like doesn't feel natural because I'm used to performing like in a live environment where you don't have a click track necessarily like being pumped into your brain while you're playing your songs. But yeah, because music is produced now on such a time crunch, often people will do overdubs, Hmm. which is where, for example, well, this is what Christine would have been doing. You know, you record your piano part first and then Mm -hmm. you sing over the part that you just recorded. Right. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And that typically tends to be a little bit more efficient because if you're recording to a click track, that means that you can like mix and match which takes you've done because it's standardized to a tempo. Mm -hmm. And so like that means that you can do like three or four takes of something. And then since it doesn't deviate in time, you can use any of them instead of having to like completely redo all of the parts. Right. Right. And I feel like that's the answer to the question I realize I should really need to pose to you as well, which is like, why not just record it all together? Like, why record it in parts at all? Mm -hmm. As you were talking about editing podcasts before, I feel like it is like it maps onto both things the same way. It's it gives you more choices. Yeah, it gives you more choices. And then it also is like if you're doing such a long recording session, you're like, you're not going to finish the song. Like if you know you're not going to finish the song today and you're going to have to revisit it in a few weeks or if you're going to go to a new studio or just do anything where you might have to revisit it later, it's a lot easier to be like, okay, the click track is 86 beats per minute. And so we can send this off to somebody to like play over it rather than us all having to be there at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then also with podcasts, like we record isolated so that I can move all of the words around so it doesn't sound like we're talking over each other when we definitely are. (laughs) Yeah, and that's it's the best. And what if, you know, instead of that, you just had two people talking over each other and there's nothing you can do to separate their voices and you can't make them make more sense. Which is what most podcasts are. And yeah, it's terrible. Unfortunately, (laughs) yeah. And then it's like, if I wanted this, I would just live in my real life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the other issue they're running into acoustically is that so she records her piano. She can't really sing while doing it or she can't sing while doing it. And then she records her vocals and they want the vocals to have reverb to go with the piano reverb, which is the reason they're playing it in this auditorium. Mm-hmm. But she's singing very softly into this fancy new microphone. Mm-hmm. And so... They kind of get through the day, they send her home, and then they're listening to what they've got. And they're like, oh, we're not getting a reverb from Christine. She's not matching the sound of the piano. And so mm-hmm. they're problem solving this, Ken and Richard, the two engineers. And they're like, why don't we just get a speaker and play Christine's vocals through that and then record that and we'll play the speaker at a higher volume so it'll we'll get the reverb that we wanted yeah okay interesting this is kind of what i was talking about earlier which is what they used to do well if i'm understanding this correctly like this is sort of what they used to do at Capitol. yeah and then it's so funny how like when you listen to songbird which is you know one of the iconic fleetwood mac songs you know they made so many of them it's hard to pick a short list but It feels like you're hearing this moment that really happened, but really you're hearing the combination of different moments in time. And also you're hearing a piano played by real Christine and then the voice of speaker Christine. Yeah. Hmm. There's a day when the women who work at the studio who cook for them make what turn out to be some very strong weed cookies and everyone gets too high to continue and they have to scrap the whole day. And also some piano tuners have come to tune Christine's piano and they also get too high. Oh my God. We're just like definitely not working with efficiency in mind. (laughs) No. Yeah. And also it's like when Stevie needs to record, you know, they'll be like, Stevie, you want to come do vocals? And she's like, I really need to sit on this couch drinking brandy and smoking pot for another hour. And this is at a a time in the industry when it's like, okay, yeah, I'm sure you do. Yeah. The ability to have the luxury of being like, yeah, you need another hour to like mentally or whatever, 
get where you need to be emotionally to sing this song right. Like that seems like something that we have lost and could have used more of. Yeah, like what kind of emotion would we be able to tap into if we had the ability to work when we wanted to? Yeah, and use the parts of the day that have the most energy for us. Yeah. So Ken Kelly writes, by Monday, March 15th, I had lost all ability to keep the band sane and sober. There were (laughs) continual outbreaks of drugs, alcohol, and paranoia. We still had a month to go in Sausalito and everyone was getting homesick. Our start time was slipping later and later each day. As I explained earlier, the 12-hour rule always holds true. If they left the studio at 4 a.m., then they would not be back until 4 p.m., period. Mm. Mick was the worst influence. He always made the excuse that genius music would come out of the transcensions, but it never did. Maybe that was because the whole band was rarely there for most of the transcensions. Just the coked up crazies, Mick and usually Stevie or Christine. If Mick could get either of them tooted up enough, then off the deep end we'd go. Very rarely would Lindsay fall for the late nights, and John never did. Hmm. Mick had a phrase he frequently repeated, which I later learned was a quote from Robert Frost. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, and we have miles to go before we sleep. If that phrase was spoken to him, he would go into a trance-like state and reach into his pocket and pull out his tiny bottle of Coke and share it with us. Hmm. It became a game of sorts. Interesting. And apparently this kind of changes through their recording sojourn. But at the start, the band would just keep like a baggie of three or four ounces of Coke just like in the middle of the studio. And they can all just like grab some when they want it i mean yeah (laughs) and ken decides to prank them by filling another baggie with flour and then bringing it out and pretending to like drop it everywhere (laughs) (laughs) this is just like yeah i guess a good description of the process Mm -hmm. stevie couldn't find the same mood she had had the first time she had sung it but she was a trooper and didn't give up Lindsay played an acoustic guitar for her to sing to nope she tried smoking a joint better The big guns came out, Curvoisier, interesting. She tried a magic bump. Nothing had the feel of her original vocal. Hmm. Which song is this for? This is for Dreams. Oh, wow. And so also there's tension because Stevie is spending less time recording than the rest of the band because they don't need her as much because they're not miking her tambourine. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) she starts kind of going off to another area of the music plant, which is called the pit. I tried to find pictures of this. I couldn't. I'm sure that there are some out there. Um, But basically, you got there by climbing through a pair of red lips. And then you could record Mm -hmm. while in a four poster bed. Wow. That is not what I was expecting when you said the pit. I was expecting more of like, I don't know why I was expecting one of those like ball pits that you used to go to at like McDonald's. I, I would like that too. Just like Stevie, you like jump into the ball pit at McDonald's and you bump into Stevie next with her keyboard writing her song. I mean, she really is the face of yeah. Fleetwood Mac, I would say, at this point in time. Like, I mean, and currently in 2022. But it's interesting to think about the fact that she was maybe recorded the least on it, even though she probably has the most cultural impact. Right. It is really funny. And I feel like she's, you know, I think she's the secret ingredient that kind of holds the whole thing together because the the emotional vulnerability and kind of clarity of the lyrics and then also the showmanship of it, mm-hmm. where she was yeah. the person who didn't need to be behind an instrument and could be sort of the, the visual of the music that was happening. Yeah. 
it is crazy that they are doing all of this, even though they're like breaking up actively and obviously like going through addiction issues and and anger issues and just generally not having their shit together. I do relate to the fact that sometimes like the power and like desire to make the music that you're hearing in your head is so much more powerful than anything you're going through in your just like everyday life. And I think that that feeling definitely comes through in this album and is probably why it's had such a lasting impact. Like this, this album is very impactful mm-hmm. and very emotional and intense. And obviously that's because of what they were going through, but also it seems like they were like, well, we just have this innate desire to make this music. Mm-hmm. We just have to, even though we're going through this because they easily could have just been like, no, we're just not doing this. Right. Yeah. Or were they under pressure from the record label? Like, was that part of it? And, not, and nothing that I've read did it seem to occur to anybody to stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why they call that sign Don't Stop, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there was a feeling of it being difficult to get through. But yeah, it, se- it seems like everyone was so passionate about the work that they were doing and so excited about it that it felt to some extent like, well, we obviously have to do this. Yeah. Because we're improving and like they were improving as they were touring and, mm. you know, their live renditions of songs that had been on the album they would put out the past year were improving on mm-hmm. what they'd recorded for that. Mm-hmm. And so they have until April 11th at the record plant in Sausalito, where Stevie gets to go write songs in the pit. That's where she writes Dreams. And where the general practice for recording songs is, you know, they'll mic and record each instrument individually. They'll do a bunch of takes. They'll do, you know, like eight or 10 takes at a time. They'll listen back to what they have and they'll pick different instruments from different sessions that kind of create the Mm -hmm. best whole and then go back in and fill that in and add more instrumentation and Mm -hmm. more vocals potentially. And Christine McVie actually mentioned in one interview that she like got a sculpture degree in school and like that kind of feels like what they're doing. Like they're doing a paper mache album. Yeah. Which is sculpture. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because this is so standard now uh, in the recording industry to do everything in parts and for not everybody to be in the same room at the same time. And often, you know, if somebody's recording something in Nashville, but there's a guitarist that they love in L.A., they'll just send the tracks to L.A. And then, mm. like, it's just very standard for people to not necessarily be working in the same zone at the same time. But I think it this is like a newer thing in the 70s, because if you watch get back which is the beatles documentary Mm -hmm. that's like a gazillion hours long which is perfect for me but maybe not perfect for people who don't love the beatles they're all recording just in one room at the same time and that's in 1969 Mm -hmm. so like well late 60s and 70s are really when people start getting more into the ability to do this yeah and when i was a little beatles fan i'm still a beatles fan i guess spent a lot less time actively thinking about the beatles than when i was like 13 (laughs) I remember reading about how, like, it seemed like they were actively innovating when they were recording and just, like, trying out a bunch of stuff. And that, like, Revolution Number 9 was, like, technically a very new thing when it came out and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so it feels like the 70s were kind of like the space age for music engineering. Like, recording in in general, it's... it's it blows my mind all the time even just the fact that like i can talk into a microphone and it it can get converted into signal like i understand how it works but just the fact that 
it sounds like my voice still. Like, no matter who records, it's going to sound like them. Like, that's crazy. That's like magic. Mm-hmm. Also, the fact that a lot of recording equipment came about to exist through the military. Hmm. Like, for example, compressors, which like levels the highs and lows of a sound wave mm-hmm. so that it's not like so loud that it hurts your ears and not so soft that you can't hear it. Hmm. Like that came about as technology for radio, like, you know, walkie talkies and things like that, because hmm. one guy might talk super loud and like blast your ear off mm-hmm. if you're, you know, whatever in combat. And then another guy might be so soft that you can't hear him. So they wow. created this technology so that you can hear each other. And that's a lot of the technology that we use for recording and a lot of the technology that was being used for overdubs and things like that hmm. in this recording session, I'm sure like came about because of military technology and then was like repurposed into art. Wow. Yeah, that's just yeah. That's amazing to think about is the the connection between World War II and rumors. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a short walk. That also reminds one of the facts in this book that makes me feel like I'm being pranked is Ken Kelly being like, "Yeah, rumors was successful. I think partly because it was a loud album. We made it louder than other albums were at the time. So when you played it, it was mm. louder." And I'm like, "Is that?" Is that how records work? And apparently it is. Yeah. So there is like something that happens. There's like a loudness bias that people have where people think something sounds better if it's louder, which is why stuff that's on the radio now, like if you're listening in the car, you can turn the the knob up and down for it to fit your, you know, your comfort. Mm-hmm. But overall, things are mastered, which the difference between mixing and mastering Mixing is when you're leveling the voices with each other and like leveling everything so nothing, you know, so everything's like intelligible, like within the song. And then mastering from album is like matching each of the songs levels to each other Hmm. so that like, Mm -hmm. okay, if you're listening to Songbird, you don't have to turn it up once you get to gold dust woman right because they're all they're all different like loudnesses so right mastering is making sure that everything's like basically you know sort of the same volume Mm -hmm. from song to song and now we master songs way 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 louder Hmm. there's much less variance in dynamics now Mm -hmm. than there used to be just because people or like record labels and like they tend to think that loudness is better right yeah, that makes me think of watching TV and a commercial comes on. And uh, no, exactly. Yeah, it's the best. <laughs> so they finished their initial session in Sausalito. They're nine weeks at the record plant, and uh, Ken drives the masters down on the seat beside him in his car. <laughs> down to LA mm-hmm. which just like boggles my mind and they're not there's like another copy there's one more copy but like that's <laughs> it <laughs> yeah oh god it's so stressful there exists you know a finite number of the objects on which this music is encoded and if they're lost they're just lost forever yeah mm-hmm. like it's amazing how many important films of the silent era are just gone because people didn't bother preserving them or didn't do it correctly Yeah, totally. And so two of the main issues that the band is kind of having a hard time resolving is that there's a song that they've been working on from the beginning that they've been calling Keep Me There, but that doesn't really have lyrics Hmm. and that they can't figure out how to make cohesive. And it's like, it's this great song instrumentally, like it's got this great 
you know, John McVie bass part. It's got Lindsay freaking out on guitar. There's like something really compelling about it, but they can't get it to come together. Mm-hmm. And then that Stevie has written this song called Silver Springs, but it's like eight minutes long and they have to figure out whether it's going to fit on the album. And I remember when I first learned about this, I thought it was bullshit that they were like, listen, Stevie, it's too long. But it was too long because the album could only be 44 minutes long. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Because when you're working with vinyl and when you're working with analog, you're working with a physical medium. And there's only so much time that you can have on either side of a vinyl because you're literally putting the grooves into the vinyl. And if it's too much data on one side, then the sound will start to distort. So you you can only have like, I don't know, 20-ish minutes on either side of a vinyl. Yeah, which is amazing. Just thinking about, I don't, yeah, like the freedoms we have today that we don't really notice and stuff that I'm aware of. Cause like, I remember when, you know, even in high school, I would make playlists for people or like mix CDs, but you still had to fit it onto a CD and you had like 80 minutes or something. Yeah, totally. Yeah. If your eight minutes of your 44 minutes is taken up with this one song, then. That's a pretty big percentage. (laughs) So some record executives come down to listen to one of the tracks, as it sounds so far. They listen to Go Your Own Way, which is Lindsay writing bitterly about his breakup with Stevie Nicks and famously having her sing backup on it (laughs) on a song about how shacking up is all she wants to do. (laughs) I wonder if that's true or not. I mean, it's kind of an odd accusation, I guess, more than anything. Yeah, especially after hearing that quote from her about, like, I couldn't comfort him. Like, that doesn't sound like the language of somebody who's just trying to, like, pin him down, you know? It's just that you couldn't comfort me is just a bad lyric, I guess. Yeah. It's not compelling in the same way. I suppose so. Right, because it's like... Stevie Nicks has a lot of I'm so sad in the lyrics he's writing about this breakup. And you don't Mm -hmm. get that so much from Lindsay Buckingham. You know, like, Go Your Own Way is like such a bouncy, defiant, cocaine-influenced song. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) And it's just like, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm fine with this breakup. I love this for us. I actually would have been surprised if he would have been able to access any sadness because I don't generally feel like when men are going through breakups that's like the first thing they can (laughs) yeah you have to be angry for six months to your entire life and then you can think about accessing sadness right yeah especially for somebody who obviously is already prone to anger issues you know and so they're touring they can like feel their level of fame changing Mm -hmm. like it's evident and then they're in the studio and Lindsay quote barges in and a few minutes later Richard the other engineer Richard Dashett whose name I hope I'm pronouncing somewhat correctly and Lindsay's new girlfriend Christina come in and Christina says that Lindsay erupted and got angry and punched her (gasps) ah wow Lindsay apparently Richard talks to Lindsay and says what are you doing Lindsay are you fucking crazy you don't do that to people. And Lindsay says, I know, you're right. I don't know why she got me that mad, which is, you know. Oh, Lindsay, fuck you. Lindsay, yeah. Not the response we were hoping for. Gotta blame the person that you just punched. No. Ugh, God. And then Lindsay gets 
truly angry at Ken a little bit later on because basically Lindsay is doing take after take of lead guitar for Go Your Own Way and isn't satisfied with anything. They've reached the max of what they can keep recorded before they have to start taping over stuff, which as anybody who has used a home video to record a Treehouse of Horrors episodes understands <laughs> the trauma that could potentially surround that. Mm -hmm. And so... Lindsay's like, let's do another one. Let's do another one. Let's just record over that last one. And they're like, are you sure, Lindsay? Are you positive? And he's like, yeah. And then at some point into this, he's like, let's actually, let's play that one from before again. I think they like that better. And they're like, that's the one that you told us to record over. And according to Ken, he like goes into the booth, grabs him by the throat, oh which God. is fucking terrifying. I and everyone knows that's terrifying. I don't have to say that's terrifying, but it is. Yeah, that reminds me of Kubrick during the filming of The Shining, who was famously just terrible to Shelley Duvall and was like, you have to do take after take after take after take. And basically, I mean, in this case, Lindsay is the one telling himself to do the, the takeover and over and over again yeah, but wow. basically like i can definitely speak from experience that there is a point of negative returns when you're doing something over and over and over again where yeah you know the 50th take is not going to be that much different from the 100th take and at a certain point you have to just live with yourself uh in your in your imperfections but also it reminds me of kubrick in the sense that that's like a very violent thing to do. <laughs> what we're willing to forgive in the service of art. Like, I feel like Rumors is a great album in spite of that kind of thing, you know, because there's drive and then there's like drive that takes you to the point where it's not actually improving your work. You're just like stuck in a loop with yourself. Right. And you're strangling Colby Calais' dad. <laughs> <laughs> not so bubbly. <laughs> <laughs> I guess and this idea of like, you know, yeah, the lone male genius who he was right and everyone was wrong. And it's like, you know, I myself like stories about someone who had to be a bit of a dickhead to make art. And that's why I love the making of Titanic story so much. But I also feel strongly that like, you know, Lindsay Buckingham, mm -hmm. when he joined Fleetwood Mac, he brought Stevie Nicks with him. They just came as a unit. And I feel like that gets told as like, he insisted on bringing his girlfriend with him. And they were like, well, all right. but And, you know, there can have been, I'm sure, some element of that. But I also think that he didn't really have his own musical identity yet, that that was just how they performed and what they knew how to do and how their best work had come to them so far it was as a duo. Mm. I still can't say why Fleetwood Mac ever made the choices that they did, but I feel like if you are a band who, if you're people who are like learning to exist as bandmates, as you're learning how to stop existing as romantic partners, and it's like, I don't know, you have to be doing that out of some recognition that you're doing something together that you couldn't do alone. And not just financially. <laughs> I am relating to that because I often have been like somebody's girlfriend who maybe not often, but it's happened to mm -hmm. me before where I've been somebody's girlfriend. They're, they're like, oh, well, you're their girlfriend. Like, maybe just be in the band. You're around all the time anyways. That way he won't complain about never spending time together. R yeah, something like that or, you know. And then 
not that I'm like Stevie Nicks or anything like that, but like I've often been in situations where then you're like, you're the face of the band, even though you were kind of an afterthought. Yeah. And also I've definitely been in many musical situations where I've been, you know, doing the majority of the writing or doing the majority of the work or doing the majority of, you know, whatever. And then like the Lindsay Buckingham of the situation will be like, well, will claim that work that I did was their own. But I can kind of see some of that in this where it's like he's treating himself like as if he's this genius. Where it's like, yeah. you're just you're just Lindsay Buckingham. Like. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, and he can even be a genius of guitar, but like he's not a genius of emotions. Like you don't have to have strong emotional intelligence to write Holiday Road, I'm sorry to say. I just don't really believe in genius. And I I just don't really think that's a thing, even though there are people who are incredible at what they do. Yeah. It's just interesting that like, she's just thought of as this afterthought at this point in time and not to like totally conflate my own situation because they're obviously vastly different. But she's doing a ton of work in this and like obviously a ton of emotional lifting and yeah, that's coming through in her lyrics, definitely. And then also just this idea that like you have to suffer to make art is just so bullshit. Like, mm-hmm. like just being basically alive is enough to be able to like tap into the depths of emotion that we all have. And like you don't have to experience pain and you don't have to inflict pain to be better at making art. I always think of those stories where somebody did like a bajillion takes of something and just was pushed past endurance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they just used the first take anyway. I think that happened with Anne Hathaway and Les Mis, speaking of click tracks. Mm-hmm. And it's and that's always like passed off as a funny story, but it's like it's not funny. Like it's actually like you can't treat performers as your little like human props that you can like push to an emotional breaking point whenever you feel like it, just because you can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What stands out to me about rumors really is like Lindsay Buckingham is a scary guy and they're and like John McVie is drinking way too much and everyone's apparently doing at least some and probably too much cocaine. And there's, you know, there's like a lot of elements of precarity here, but like also people are sleeping enough. People are eating enough. People mm-hmm. have time to like back off of an idea and come back to it mm-hmm. and like release something they're truly happy with. And really the like the comfort of the whole thing is what stands out today. And also, yeah, it's like, why are you pushing yourself like this when you don't have to? Yeah, Lindsay, (laughs) you know, the best work in this seems like it comes from just like being in the lips and bedroom (laughs) sometimes (laughs) or, you know, not trying again and again until you're kind of past the point of endurance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So speaking of (laughs) the point of endurance, Silver Springs is still eight minutes long. Ken and the rest of the band are like, Stevie, the song is too long. And Lindsay is like, yeah, Stevie, this <laughs> song is too long. <laughs> okay. Which Silver Springs is my favorite Fleetwood Mac song. It's my favorite Stevie Nicks song. My favorite lyrics of it, I think, are time cast a spell on you, but you won't forget me. I know I could have loved you, but you could not let me. Mm-hmm. You'll never get away from the sound of the woman who loves you. There's no, like, mathematical canceling out of feelings. It's not like love plus Mm -hmm. anger equals nothing. It's like love plus anger plus hurt plus sadness plus hope plus question mark equals the song. (laughs) 
So they go through Silver Springs and try and cut it and try and cut down inessential lyrics. And Stevie is like in tears while they're doing this because it's so painful for her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She says, these lyrics are part of the story and we can't cut them. And Ken says, if we don't shorten the song, then it may not fit on the album. It's my job to try and save your song, Mm. which I feel like is very much the producer's role, which is like, I am trying to help you. Yeah. Oh, God. (laughs) Then cut the lyrics. She straightened up like a proud soldier. (laughs) She worked for several hours, and I could see that poor Stevie was devastated by the process. Oh, my God. It's so unfair that my beautiful song has to be mutilated, she said at one point. I agree, I said. As I've already mentioned, I thought Silver Springs was one of the strongest songs we'd recorded, and I really wanted to save it. Mm -hmm. But if you want to keep a longer version of Silver Springs, then the only option is to take one of your other songs off the album. Mm -hmm. And so they do get it down to four minutes and 33 seconds. Okay, wow. And ultimately, according to this book, which I guess I, I would like to dig deeper on this, but I will accept the story that the band was all like, yeah, it's still too long. Mm. And I don't think that anyone was conspiring to get rid of it. But I think that, you know, it's a song about her breakup with Lindsay. And I think it's just like, it's not mean. And I think it's devastating because it's not mean. Like, Go Your Own Way is a mean song. And this is not, there's like no bitterness in it, which I think is in a way kind of scarier. (laughs) Yeah, especially maybe for somebody whose first instinct is anger. It's like terrifying to not be met with your first instinct. Yeah. You know, like to see something totally foreign emotionally. Like, yeah, to not have like the Stevie recrimination song, like go your own way, comma T-O-O. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And he says that like he feels like Gold Dust Woman is like a bitter, acrimonious song and it's like directed at him, even though it's really about groupies. Yeah. All right. But yeah. And so they don't put it on the album. The band like nominates Mick Fleetwood to go tell her because nobody else wants to. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't. And he breaks the news to her and she's... Yeah, very upset about it. And it ends up being the B-side for the first single off of Rumors, which is Go Your Own Way. Oh, my God. That is a real knife to the chest right there. Yeah, and it just gets out into the world and, like, people find it gradually and love it. And they perform it when they reunite in the concert film The Dance. Mm. But I feel, yeah, I guess it's like the Fleetwood Mac story all over, which is it's like the song that wouldn't die that like technically gets out into the world but like people have to figure out over the years how great it is Mm -hmm. and go your own way is great as well it's not not Mm -hmm. a great song (laughs) right yeah but once again it's just kind of one it's one emotion at a time (laughs) yeah and the emotion is go your own way i'm fine i'm fine yeah i didn't get impaled when i fell in this hole that's just a stick i'm holding over my torso i'm actually making way better music now that i have this stick in me (laughs) (laughs) so ken and richard the two engineers ken is now a producer so ken and richard are listening to the masters and they're like does this sound wrong this sounds a little off huh What he says is that the heads, the little tape heads that the tape Mm -hmm. goes around are getting tape oxide on them. So like the tape is basically starting to rub itself off onto the playback equipment. Yeah. So that's terrifying. And so luckily they have the other set of tapes, the only one other one. 
So scary. So Ken starts troubleshooting this. He talks to a maintenance engineer, Billy Yodelman, and says, is it possible to get the overdubs from our worn out tape onto these unused masters? I asked him. Maybe, he said, but you'll have to sync up two machines by hand and control the speed Uh. of one machine so it stays in sync with the other. That's never been done before and it won't be easy. Sounds difficult. I wouldn't want to do it. (laughs) Yeah. So, yes, they do it. It takes till five in the morning and they're able to save the masters and save rumors. Holy shit. So we're getting into the home stretch. Silver Springs has been cut. We're trying to cope with that loss. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> they shoot the album art. And it is, of course, I don't know why this didn't occur to me, but of course it was. It is controversial with the rest of the band that the cover <laughs> of Rumors shows only Mick Fleetwood and Stevie Nicks and nobody else. Yeah. And it's a really cool cover. But, you know, if you're one of the fi- three other people in that five-person mm-hmm. group, then you would be mad. And then according to Ken Calais, to avoid this happening with Tusk, the little dog on the cover of the Tusk album of his is his dog Scooter. And then he said that Stevie Nicks told him that she placed a hex on Scooter because he got her place on the cover. <gasps> <laughs> I really, really respect that energy. <laughs> She's like, fuck Scooter. <laughs> and Ken feels that like... Stevie and Christine never liked Scooter because he was always humping their little dogs. So I was meaning to ask, like, what is the relationship between Stevie and Christine? Like, are they do they get along at all? I mean, (laughs) they seem to get along fine in the making of rumors, but I think they're just kind of on somewhat different planets. And then there's, you know, in one of the pieces from kind of soon after the Buckingham Nixes joined the group. Christine McPhee is kind of quoted at length being like, no, I love having CV in the band. It's great. It's so great. And it's like, okay, maybe I believe you. <laughs> okay. She's like, no, really, it's really great. No, I, it's so great. Because like, I don't know, this is pure projection. But I think that like, one of the things that makes Fleetwood Mac unusual is having multiple women. Usually you have a bunch of guys or maybe a bunch of guys and one woman. Mm-hmm. And if there's two, then like... If you're the pre-existing woman, then your ability to not be totally discredited in conflict or to kind of collectively bargain improves or you like have someone to go to who understands the position that you're in 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 some ways. But also like Mm -hmm. you're not the only woman anymore. And that is kind of it's like a very toxic position, but it's one that has benefits if those are the only ones you can imagine, especially. Yeah, especially at this time. I could see that being difficult to deal with. Yeah, and I feel like the tension really, I mean, there's like the couple tension and there's the tension of, you know, and Stevie Nicks and Mick Fleetwood have a brief and ill-advised affair. I was going to ask. There's all kinds of stuff, which shockingly did not inspire Oh Daddy. (laughs) But there's also kind of the tension between like, you know, the, the rest of the band and Stevie, who again is like, it's like unclear to everybody ex- exactly what she's contributing. Like, I don't think that anyone doubts that she's contributing something or a lot of something, but it's like it hasn't yet mm-hmm. become evident what she's doing to the whole of the band's structure. Hmm. Yeah. She's maybe the one or like a big part of what helps the, to bridge the gap from like music that is really good and that you can really enjoy and can bring out big feelings in you to music that like, We'll get a big feeling out of you, whether you like it or not. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this makes me think of Landslide, which is obviously one of the most 
lopsided emotional songs. Yeah. Like she seems inevitable. Her whole thing seems inevitable. But like when you're, <laughs> if you haven't heard rumors yet, I guess it maybe is confusing. And so, yeah, to Stevie's abilities, we have this this nagging song, Keep Me There, which like has a lot of promise, but just isn't fully there yet. And then finally, near the end of the process, they look at these lyrics that Stevie has written for this song called The Chain. Oh. <laughs> which are just like sad, desolate, like just like pure sadness. Mm-hmm. And then decide to use those. And then suddenly that's the missing piece. And it's you have this like... Mm barn burner of a song that opens with lyrics about vulnerability yeah mm. i feel like that's also your brand <laughs> <laughs> oh my god ideally yeah i love that song so much and it's impossible to categorize and it just feels it's angry and it's sad and it's defiant and it's scary and it's passionate and it's mm-hmm. you could match it to like a bunch of different emotions and it would work for all of them also, I'm just looking at the lyrics to the chain right now, and the opening lines are listen to the wind blow, watch the sunrise, running in the shadows, damn your love, damn your lies. Wow. And if you don't love me now, you will never love me again. Yeah. Which I think in that original drafting was just this like sad, desolate thing to say. And then it somehow becomes when matched with that instrumentation, like defiant, I've always felt, you know, like you either yeah. have to mm-hmm. love me right now or just fucking give up on it, man. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and so they get the final mix done. And then just to sort of highlight the wonder and horror of analog, I'm going to read you a little passage again from Ken Kelly's book about how records are born, because this is just, Mm -hmm. again, I feel like I'm being pranked. (laughs) In the days of final records, the mastering engineer had to play the tape through his console and turn all of the knobs precisely on cue to make the required adjustments in real time. This sent the final stereo mix out of the mastering console to a large lathe, which had a sharp Mm -hmm. blade that vibrated and converted the sound waves into grooves on the disc. It literally cut the grooves into the rotating blank virgin lacquer to make an actual long-playing LP record. When people played the discs on their turntables at home, their record players each had a diamond needle that would sit in the groove. As the disc turned, the tiny bumps down in the cut groove would convert back into sound that could be played out of the speakers. Then the mastering engineer had to reload the lathe with new blank lacquer, put side two of the tape onto the tape machine, and repeat the process with different cues for side two. After both sides were cut, the mastering engineer placed the lacquer parts in a box to be shipped out to the local pressing plant, where each final disc was placed in a bath that coated the lacquer discs with silver. These metal Mm -hmm. images became the master impressions from which other vinyl versions would be created. And so Ken and Richard, who have been working together on rumors this entire time, are watching the little records being born. And then they're like, what happens when you just leave the masters like sitting here for a while after making them? And the guy who's cutting them, Ken Perry, is like, oh, yeah, we always do that. The quality isn't compromised very much Mm. and he says much (laughs) Hmm. ken explained that after the grooves were cut into the lacquer they were perfect but as the hours pass the grooves tend to spring back toward their original state somewhat i was horrified Mm. and so 
Richard and Ken decide that they need to drive the lacquers to the bath, which is in another building down the street, so that they can uh-huh. get bathed in silver before they have a chance to mm-hmm. degrade, which apparently they determine later saves like 5% in terms of overall quality. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's almost the end of the story of rumors. And then mm-hmm. to me, the end is uh, Silver Springs live in 1997. But I don't know. I love knowing that about the actual little records that went into the world. <laughs> I think it's cool that we're learning about this through the engineer's perspective, because I think it could be very easy to just focus on like the interpersonal relationships, which is obviously a massive part of this. But like the feat of this music is that it happened despite all of these things working against it, despite it being such a long process, despite all of these people going through massive turmoil interpersonally. And these engineers were like, okay, we're just going to make it happen. We're going to drive it to the silver <laughs> coating place to get the, to get it reproduced faster. And yeah, I just, yeah. Congratulations to Colby Kelly's dad for, <laughs> <laughs> for caring so much. There's something so great about knowing that, like, when I have to get something I've recorded to you, I just put it in Google Drive and then share it with you as a file. But it would be cool to, like, Mm -hmm. have to drive it to you. I mean, that's all I would do with any. I would just be constant. We would just need to live across the street from each other, which would be fine. Yeah, (laughs) that would be totally great. (laughs) What we have today is like in many ways superior, but we're also at the point where we're realizing that the internet is not particularly protected and like huge swaths of it can just be like gone Mm -hmm. all of a sudden and that there is no cloud. That's just the cloud is just in a building somewhere and that building can catch on fire. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of this analog weekend that I did recently, it was at this studio in Nashville called Welcome to 1979, where they actually do all of this like vinyl cutting and reproduction and things like that and the silver plating and all of that. And I was talking to the owner of that studio and he was saying that the safest way to store your music mm-hmm. is to have analog masters made, mm-hmm. which is crazy to think about because it feels so precarious that they had these analog tape masters and this analog vinyl and like, it feels precarious to have a physical medium be like the finite thing because anything can happen to physical art. You know, I mean, like our bodies will all be disintegrated one day. One day, these vinyls will all be disintegrated. None of this is permanent. Like art is not for forever, unfortunately, no matter what. But it's especially not for forever because if you think about the history of digital recording, even in the last 20 years, If somebody sent me a recording or like a set of files that Mm -hmm. was in Pro Tools from like 2008, I wouldn't be able to access it. Like I wouldn't be able to work on it Mm -hmm. if, I mean, if it was like an MP3 or something, but if they sent me the actual like Pro Tools session, I wouldn't be able to open it. Mm -hmm. And that's not that long ago. And the same, same thing between like, you know, if somebody sent me like a digital session from 1999 I wouldn't be able to access it and that's not that long ago but I mean I would have to like have a lot more equipment than I have but if somebody sent me analog masters I would be able to do something with it if it was 10 years from now 20 years from now 50 years from now 100 years from now right there was a tornado in Nashville in 
2020, like right before the pandemic hit, this was like in March and actually contributed Mm -hmm. to why Alex and I moved away from Nashville because the house we were going to live in got hit by the tornado. But Woodland Studios, which is Gillian Welch's and Dave Rawlings studio, has all of their analog masters of all of their music in there, like the tapes. And as the tornado was hitting, like the roof got taken off of that studio and like one of the biggest things that they had to deal with was making sure that their masters were okay and getting those all safely but i would much rather have to deal with that precarity which is the same precarity that we deal with in our mortal bodies every day (laughs) right than being like oh shit i can't open this google drive link (laughs) yeah god i mean it's funny too because i've felt this desire to just like yeah do as much stuff analog as possible and i'm sure that's a response to like just by default more and more of life is taking place in these virtual spaces that just that your body doesn't really register as real in the same way and you're not really tricking your like mammal Mm -hmm. self i feel like i haven't adequately said like why rumors why do i care why are we here you know because i it's easy to take it for granted Mm -hmm. that it's great and um yeah, why, why are you invested? Why does rumors matter? Why does it matter to you? Mm. Well, first of all, rumors matters to me because it was shown to me by one of my best friends, Natalie Peterson, in high school. And I grew up in a very instrumental household. Mm-hmm. My parents are both jazz musicians and classical musicians. So I grew up around a lot of that and a lot of prodigiousness like being a prodigy is like or you know playing something as fast as possibly Mm -hmm. you know you can like that was considered like what or at least what i interpreted that kind of music to be valued Mm -hmm. and when i finally started listening to more rock music more folk music more country music more blues just like music that was song based rather than instrumentally focused only Mm -hmm. like it just unlocked this part of me that I had no idea was Mm. even possible or that I even had capacity for my main mode of making music now is is writing songs and it took me a long time to be able to get into that and be able to like actually access that part of myself because it's a very vulnerable thing but listening to rumors was definitely one of the first stepping stones to being able to get there Mm. because of how incredibly crafted Mm -hmm. the songs are and incredible the lyrics are and so that's why it matters to me for sure I don't know if you feel this way because you're very well spoken and you're very (laughs) good at articulating your thoughts But I think that the only time I am myself and the only time I'm able to actually express who I am and what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling is when I write a song. I mean, I think that's how I how I felt about writing for most of my life. And for a really long Mm -hmm. time, it felt like the only place I could really, truly articulate myself was like through like when I was writing something. And if I had to do it like live Mm -hmm. socially, it would not happen. I would just like I would look back and be like, I don't recognize that person. And I think I love podcasts so much because it was like bringing this kind of, I don't know, and like being in academia where you're in sort of seminars a lot and bringing me to a place where I felt like I was being asked to express how I authentically like thought or felt in a way where like it was like actually me 
and not like you create mm-hmm. a proxy for mm-hmm. yourself that then goes out and talks to people for you. Yeah. So I identify with that where it's like, and that's why I love Stevie Nicks because the sort of the idea of like this voice that opens up to you if you sit very quietly in the room behind the lips. Yeah. <laughs> like that. Yeah. That feels yeah. very real to me. And like, I'm not a particularly religious person. And I think that we all kind of like need that feeling that comes with transcendence. And that's probably what they were trying to get out with the drugs, but maybe missed a little bit. Mm. It's like, yeah, you need to get these songs out there. You need to say the things that you're feeling and you don't always have other ways to do it. Like, it seems like these people were not very great communicators and this was like their way of figuring out how they felt. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a generosity to just being like, yeah, this is about all of us having breakups because I feel like maybe not bands as much, but definitely writers are often like, no, my fiction's not autobiographical at all. And it's like, oh, (laughs) okay, what is it based on then? Because it's, you know, it's about the experience of being a human and you are a human. So like, where are you getting that from? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It just makes sense to me that they didn't stop making this because it seems like the only way that they could authentically really like touch God. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like this is one of the reasons why we bother or feel compelled to make art or if, you know, if you don't feel comfortable calling what you do art, which is fine. It's a process, but, you know, making whatever Mm -hmm. you make, which is art, no matter what. Mm -hmm. On some level, I think we understand that we can lift something out of ourselves that can make sense to so many more people who we can't conceive of who are out there somewhere. So what happens after Rumors is released and like, they do they keep playing together? They just keep trucking on? <laughs> they keep going for a few more years. The album is a mega hit. People famously start doing solo projects. Stevie Nicks starts doing solo albums because she says she's just like writing too many songs for Fleetwood Mac to like fit onto their albums. So she just has to do solo albums as well. Good for her. They break up and then reunite for the dance and they will, you know, re-reunite as well. But reunite very famously with this 1997 concert film, The Dance, which Ken Calais argues Bill Clinton is partly responsible for for <laughs> getting them to come back together to play for his inauguration. Mm-hmm. I feel like her revenge is that the song didn't die and Lindsay just has to keep hearing it and hearing it and also getting to hear it. And he has to play it. And he has to play it. <laughs> and he has to listen to her sing it to him. And this this lovely verse about him cheating on her. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's the best thing that can happen. Yeah. Because then you know. Because then you know. And then he can go hang out with Don Henley. <laughs> then you can go your own way. <laughs> <laughs> I just want everybody to just take a moment. Think about your most difficult ex. (laughs) Think about the worst fight you've ever been in with them. And now think about performing with that person in front of thousands of people. (laughs) And there's just something, I, I don't know, I feel like the kind of the jokes that we make like point at the truth but are not quite there. You know, I think of like the John Mulaney line about how Bill Clinton was telling us who he was by choosing Don't Stop as his campaign song. Don't Stop, a song from Rumors, (laughs) an album by and for people cheating on each other. 
And it's like, yeah, not it's not not true, but also, you know, the I think that the, the like there's lots of albums by and for people cheating on each other. There, there's more to it than that. Hmm. It's really the like the yeah the ability to like look your ex in the face and sing a song about them to them, which is like can seem. And again, I'm a Stevie Nicks partisan, so why do I think it's unfair when Lindsay does it and it's fine when Stevie does it? It's because I'm being unfair, possibly. But mm-hmm, maybe. you know that. <laughs> but that's what it is, really. It's like not just the rawness or the size of the feelings; it's somehow making them into something that other people can feel with you. You know, I feel like it's like, it's simple like a knife is simple. Like these songs go down really easy and you cannot be conscious of everything that's happening in them, but it's still happening. And if you want to pay attention to that, then you can. And like a knife is a complicated thing to make, but it has a very simple job that it can do. And it does that job pretty well when it's (laughs) sharpened. (laughs) Okay, so just quickly, I know we're I know we're done, but yeah. I just want to quickly yeah. know your fuck Mary kill for the songs on this album. Oh my god, yes. Okay, so wait, let's get our track list here. Okay, so we've got secondhand news, dreams, never going back again, don't stop, go your own way, songbird, the chain, you make love and fun, I don't want to know, oh daddy, and gold dust woman. Okay. So I unfortunately I'm gonna kill Oh Daddy mm. <laughs> because that song personally I just can't really listen to yeah. it seriously because it's called Oh Daddy because <laughs> it's called Oh Daddy and that uh, saying Daddy should be illegal unless you're like literally in bed with somebody I you mm. <laughs> and I just can't think about that when I'm walking down the street and then I am going to fuck dreams because that mm-hmm. song is just sex straight into your veins yeah and then i think i'm gonna marry it you make love and fun which is uh Mm. maybe even a little bit more interesting now that we know that it's about her new boyfriend after divorcing her ex-husband it's like the joyful freewheeling song it's a carefree one yeah i was also gonna maybe say kill oh daddy but you've expressed Mm -hmm. why i would do that I think that I would kill I Don't Want to Know because, like, that's oh. just the least, to me, the least memorable song on oh, there. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Like, I really like it, but I don't, you know, and I'm sure now that I've said that, I'll go listen to it and be like, no, there's so much happening here. But, like, yeah, yeah. yeah if I have to kick one of them off the lifeboat, it's that and Oh Daddy are about even for me. Mm-hmm. I think I would fuck Gold Dust Woman. Okay. Because All right. it's just like very sexy and yeah. it, it captures some of that kind of like live <laughs> Stevie Nicks freak out energy that I love. Mm-hmm. There's broken glass in it, which obviously seems like a <laughs> recipe for safe sex. It reminds me of Jim Morrison singing The End, and that's the kind of sex song I want and then I think I would marry Songbird because there is like such a Mm -hmm. sort of like the morning after the massacre like tenderness to it yeah Um, it's um Songbird is amazing yeah 